Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10 for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning. John 10, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this amazing book, we come this morning to John chapter 10, verse 1. And my goal today is to cover verses 1 through 21. And the title of the message is A Victory Speech from the Good Shepherd. A Victory Speech from the Good uh, Shepherd. My wife and I got the sweetest thrill of a lifetime about six weeks ago when we got to witness Jesus saving our 31-year-old son, Brendan. On the Saturday morning of March the 11th, before our son on that occasion called upon the name of the Lord in our living room, he described himself as one of the hundred sheep that went astray, and yet he felt that Jesus had left the 99 to come and find him. He said that he had felt chased and pursued by Jesus for years, and feeling hotly pursued by Jesus, he said to us, I barricaded the door of my life to keep Jesus out, and Jesus responded by blowing my house down. That's the fierce love of the Good Shepherd. And our son's heart was melted by that pursuing love of Jesus. And right there in our living room, he prayed the sweetest prayer, calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. He returned to San Diego that day and told his girlfriend, Maggie, the news of his conversion. She was excited and went to church with him the next day. That morning, they heard a sermon from Matthew 12 on Jesus' healing of the man with the withered hand, and she was struck by Jesus' command for this man to stretch forth his withered hand so that he, Jesus, could then heal it. She felt like Jesus was speaking to her in that moment and calling her to stretch forth her brokenness to him. And she suddenly felt this overwhelming feeling of safety in the Lord's presence. And she responded to the Lord's call. I would love to tell you more about Brendan and Maggie's salvation stories, but I don't want to steal their thunder. It's their story to tell. They both have asked to be baptized here at Cornerstone on May the 21st, and they will be sharing their salvation testimonies with you then. But I begin on this note to say what I know many of you already know, and that is that there is nothing quite like watching Jesus do his thing and observing how he goes about pursuing and saving a soul. And last week, we all got to witness Jesus doing 
exactly this in John chapter 9, which is what prompts the victory speech that Jesus delivers in our passage today. Last week, we saw how Jesus healed a blind man on the Sabbath, but then we saw how the Jewish leaders faulted Jesus for what he did and accused him of being a sinner. Then they do everything in their power to discover some information that would deny the miracle and neutralize the inevitable conclusions about Jesus that his miracle pointed to. We saw in verse 22 how the Jewish leaders, you can look at the text in John 9, 22, had agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And we saw how this edict actually intimidated the man's parents from taking their stand with Jesus. As for the the man who was healed of his blindness, these religious leaders do everything they can to influence him to agree with them in their belief that Jesus is a sinner. But they fail in that goal. They verbally abuse this man. They tell him that the only way to glorify God is to agree with their viewpoint that Jesus is a sinner, and they even excommunicate him, throw him out of the synagogue because he would not agree with them in their assessment of Jesus. So that's how these spiritual leaders choose to treat a man that they should have been spiritually caring for. These Pharisees and Jewish leaders are a lot like the shepherds of Ezekiel 34, to whom God says, beginning in Ezekiel 34 two, listen to these devastating words. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. Because of the failure of these shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel's day, God promises that he will one day provide someone who would shepherd his people perfectly. Almost four centuries after King David lived and died in Ezekiel 34, 23, God speaks of a future day and he says, and I quote, then I will set over them one shepherd my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. 
The David that God is speaking of in this promise is the greater David who would descend from David. And that greater David is Jesus who walks among the Jews in John chapter 9, searching for his sheep. And guess what he does? Like any good shepherd would do, he hears about how this formerly blind man was put out of the synagogue by these wicked shepherds of Israel, and he finds that man. And upon finding him, he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And in verse 36, the man says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And in verse 37, Jesus says, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And right there on the spot, just like that, this man in verse 38 says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Wow. The good shepherd saves another soul. Man, he's good at what he does. What we have witnessed in John 9 is a royal battle for the soul of this one man, and Jesus is the shepherd who prevails in that battle and turns this man into a believing worshiper of him. And what follows in the first half of chapter 10, the passage that we're going to look at today is Jesus' victory speech, wherein we find, and this is how we'll break down our study of the text this morning, six declarations, six declarations that Jesus makes after prevailing over the religious leaders and shepherding the blind man to salvation. Six declarations that Jesus makes. You can almost imagine this blind man believing in Jesus and, and kneeling at Jesus' feet and worshiping him while Jesus delivers this victory speech in which he makes six declarations. Declaration number one Let's word it this way, and you can fill in the blank on your notes. I am the shepherd who enters by the door and leads my sheep into salvation. I am the shepherd who enters by the door and leads my sheep into salvation. You will recall that after the formerly blind man believed in Jesus, Jesus said, starting in John 9, 39, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And then, this is very important, in verse 40, the text says, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. And so still speaking to these Pharisees in verse 1 of chapter 10, Jesus goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, to you Pharisees, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. 
The kind of sheepfold that Jesus seems to be speaking of here is a roofless enclosure comprised of stone walls high enough to keep wild animals out. But then there would be an opening with a door or a gate of some sort through which the sheep would pass when they come in or go out. And here in verse 1, Jesus is saying it is thieves and robbers who climb the stone walls to get to the sheep. But the shepherd simply walks through the door of the sheepfold to get the sheep who belong to him. Jesus is essentially saying to these Pharisees, you guys are wondering why this man is worshiping me rather than following your counsel? It's because you are thieves who tried to steal this man away from me, but I simply walked through the front door and claimed him for myself. Speaking of the one who is the real shepherd, Jesus says in verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Normally the doorkeeper of a sheepfold would be an under shepherd of some sort, but in the analogy here, the doorkeeper is God who gives to Jesus the full rights to come into the fold of Israel and to claim his sheep. Jesus even goes so far as to say that the shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This kind of thing happens in the natural world of shepherding as well. Shepherds often come up with a name for each of their sheep based on some distinguishing characteristic of that sheep. And over time, each of the sheep will come to recognize their name and respond to it. And this is what Jesus is claiming here. He knows his sheep. He knows each of his sheep by name, and he knows how to call them in a way that is particular to each one of them. And this is precisely what he has done with the blind man in John 9. And why this blind man is now kneeling at Jesus' feet and worshiping him. And here in verse 3, Jesus is saying that God the Father opens the door to him, and then he enters and calls his own sheep by name. They each hear his voice and respond to him, and then he leads them out of the fold of Judaism and into the pasture of salvation that he has prepared for them. And notice that Jesus doesn't drive the sheep out, but he leads them out. In verse 4, Jesus says, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. In some cultures, even today, shepherds drive the sheep and have the sheep go out ahead of them. But Middle Eastern shepherds don't do that even to this day and neither does Jesus Jesus goes ahead of his sheep. He goes before us and we follow him and we follow him because we know his voice and we trust him. This is what Jesus has done with the blind man leaving this man 
upon meeting Jesus, feeling much safer being with Jesus outside of the religion of Judaism than he would have felt being inside the fold of Judaism without Jesus. The Pharisees desperately tried to shepherd this man away from Jesus, but this man ignored them. And he did not follow them. Instead, he followed the voice of Jesus. Look at verse 5, where Jesus speaks about his sheep and says, A stranger they simply will not follow, speaking about his own sheep, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And the strangers here are the Pharisees who tried to lure this man away from Jesus. Jesus' message to the Pharisees in these verses could not have been clearer. But guess what? Look at verse 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So, Quite graciously, I think, and thankfully, rather than giving up on them, Jesus changes up his metaphors in an effort to communicate to them more fully the truth about himself and salvation. And this brings us to the second declaration that Jesus makes after prevailing over the religious leaders and shepherding the blind man into salvation. Number two... Declaration number two, Jesus says, I am the door to abundant life. I am the door to abundant life. That's essentially the message he's going to be conveying here. Observe what Jesus does in verse seven. The text says, so, in other words, because they didn't understand his words, Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In other words, Jesus is describing himself as the door or the gate of the sheepfold where his sheep need to enter. Then look at verse 8. He says, all who came before me are, present tense, thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. There's a lot of ink that's been spilt on what Jesus is saying here in verse 8, and we can't get into the weeds on this, but here's my suggestion that we paraphrase Jesus as saying, all who come in front of me are thieves and robbers. In other words, he's saying, I am the door, and anyone who gets in front of me to prevent my sheep from entering the fold through me are thieves and robbers. Jesus is talking about the religious leaders of his own day who were seeking to come between him and his sheep and to block them from entering through Jesus into salvation. They are thieves and robbers in the sense that they're seeking to rob Christ of the sheep that rightly belong to him. The truth is that these religious leaders were actually trying to present themselves as the door to salvation. 
telling people that it was only through them and through keeping their list of good deeds that a man could be in God's good favor. But Jesus is saying here, you religious leaders are not the door to salvation. I am the door of salvation and my sheep know this. So step aside, get out of the way and step aside unless you intend to come through this door too. Observe what he says in verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Fundamentally, Jesus is saying, if a person wishes to be saved, they must realize that I am the door and then enter into salvation through me. But Jesus is saying more than the fact that we enter into the fold through him. But he tells us also here that we go in and out and find pasture through him as the door. If you are a Christian, Jesus is saying here that he's not simply the door through which you walk on the day of your conversion. He's telling you that he is also the door through which you pass every day thereafter to go in and to go out, to come in and find the rest you need and to go out and find the nourishment and pasture that you need each day. Jesus' point is that everything in the life of his sheep, whether they are coming in or going out, is always through him as the door. The language Jesus uses here ought to make a difference in how we see our lives each day as Christians. Everything in the Christian life is always through Jesus. He is the door through which we find rest, and He is the door through which we venture out and find pasture for our souls. Everything, every day, Every righteous pleasure that we enjoy as believers is always through him. And observe what Jesus says in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came into the world so that people might truly, really live, that they might have life and have that life abundantly. And he himself, he's saying, is the gateway. He's the door to the abundance of rest and the abundance of pasture that he saved his people to experience. And I must say that it's not simply that Jesus provides abundant spiritual life for us as his sheep to enjoy. What he does is he brings you to life. And in bringing you to life, he awakens you even to the natural joys that surround you. He is life. And once you are connected to him, you can see the face of your spouse 
and enjoy your children in a way that you never could before. You can enjoy your cup of coffee in the morning or the beauty of creation in a way that you never could before. Believing in Christ, being made alive through Him, gives you the eyes to see and experience your daily life more abundantly than you ever could before. This is exactly what happened to me at the age of 18. Once I surrendered to the love of Jesus, everything around me looked different, including the clouds in the sky. Everything looked different. And I was appreciating everything. It's like suddenly the world was in color to me. And I would sing the words of the hymn, heaven above is softer blue, earth around is greener green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs overflow Stars with deeper beauty shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. This is the experience of those who experience the forgiveness of their sins and experience true life through Jesus as it awakens them not only to realities in the spiritual realm, but brings color and life to their enjoyment of even natural pleasures. However you understand Jesus' words here, his language of going in and out ought to capture your imagination. It means that the Christian life is not intended by Jesus to be a life of hunkering down in the safety of the fold, but involves venturing out into new pastures to enjoy life and to feed our souls each day. So as one commentator says, and this is great advice, stop wandering away from the shepherd to seek out your own pasture and to find your own water. Every time you do, you will find the grass withered and the water bitter. Jesus is the gate through him, we rest in the safety of the fold, and it is through him that we rejoice in the sweetness of the field, unquote. This is the kind of life that Jesus has saved his sheep to experience, an expansively soul-satisfying life that alternates between the sweetness of rest in the fold and the adventure of feasting and frolicking in the fields that he leads us to. That's the abundant life that he came to provide us. But how does Jesus bring about this abundant life of going in and out for his sheep? This brings us to the third declaration that Jesus makes after prevailing over the religious leaders and shepherding the blind man to salvation Number three, declaration number three, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. Listen to what Jesus says about himself in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. (laughs) I love Jesus' words here. He obviously feels no qualms about saying, I am the good shepherd. For this is a factually true thing for him to say. And he's not simply a good shepherd, but the good shepherd, which means that he is the ultimately good shepherd without any rivals or peers. Jesus has just won this formerly blind man to himself. And here Jesus in verse 11 is essentially saying, I'm really good at what I do. I am the ultimately good shepherd. And the thing that makes him such a good shepherd is exactly what he says next. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Of course, Jesus is speaking here of his death upon a cross that will happen in six months' time. But he is also speaking about the sacrificial way he goes about caring for his sheep Jesus does not live for his own selfish, individual pleasure and ease. He lays down his life every day for the good of his sheep, and he will continue to do this every day throughout the rest of his earthly ministry all the way to the cross because that's the kind of shepherd that Jesus is. D.A. Carson says it this way, and I quote, many people in the industrialized West are inclined to think of shepherds as sentimental beings, perhaps somewhat effeminate, with their arms full of cuddly lambs. But the reality is that the shepherd's job was tiring, manly, and sometimes dangerous. Just ask David, who had to kill a lion and a bear to protect his sheep. Just ask Jacob, who as a shepherd knew what it was like to have the sheep he shepherded be torn apart by wild beasts. In doing his job of shepherding, Jacob says in Genesis 31, verse 40, and I quote, Thus I was... By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes, unquote. That's the life of the shepherd. And here in verse 11, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who is good in the way that he lays down his life to guide his sheep and to feed them and to protect them all the way to the cross laying down his life so that his sheep could come to experience abundant life through him. Comparing himself to the religious leaders of Israel, Jesus says, beginning in verse 12, look at this, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. In the world of Jesus' day, it was simply understood by everyone that the hired hand worked and cared for the sheep simply for the wages that he would get for his work. 
And people understood this and allowances were made for the fact that a hired hand might abandon the sheep in certain circumstances. In fact, in the Jewish Mishnah, the rule was that if a hired hand sees one wolf approaching the flock, he's obligated to stand his ground and defend the sheep. But if there are two or more wolves attacking the flock, then it is within the hired hand's right to flee. And he would not be held liable for abandoning the sheep under those circumstances. That's the allowance made for a hired hand who did what he did for the wages he received. But everyone knew that a true shepherd would never abandon his sheep like that because the shepherd owned the sheep and he cared for them. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing here is painting a contrast between himself and the religious leaders of Israel. The religious leaders did not care for the people under their watch. They cared more about the wages that they received from the sheep, and they had no qualms about enriching themselves at the sheep's expense. And not only would they not care about wolves attacking the sheep under their care, but they themselves often were the wolves attacking the sheep, just like they were verbally abusing the formerly blind men whom Jesus has saved and expelling him from the synagogue. Jesus says here that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep which is language that surpasses anything that was ever true in the physical realm of shepherding. Back in this day, a good shepherd would definitely risk his life for the sheep by fighting off wild animals, but his goal was always to try to stay alive, right? So that he could continue to protect his sheep. No shepherd wanted to die. But the kind of language that Jesus uses here implies that the sheep he's responsible for are themselves in danger of death, a danger that can only be removed by him dying in their place so that they don't have to die under the judgment of God. And this is something that the religious leaders of Israel could never do, nor would they if they could have, because they were too occupied with enriching themselves at the people's expense to ever think of sacrificing themselves for the good of those that they should have been caring for. They could not have been more different than Jesus, who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. But there is more. There's yet another thing that sets Jesus apart from these religious leaders of Israel that serves to explain why people like this formerly blind man would so readily follow Jesus. This brings us to the fourth declaration that Jesus makes after prevailing over the religious leaders and shepherding the blind man to salvation. Number four, I am the good shepherd who has a deeply personal relationship with my sheep. I am the good shepherd who has a deeply personal relationship with my sheep. 
In verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Jesus obviously is not embarrassed to say it again. He is the good shepherd, the ultimately good shepherd without rivals or peers. He's the best at what he does. And what is it that makes him the ultimately good shepherd? Well, for starters, he says, I know my own and my own know me. In other words, he's saying, I know in a deeply intimate way those who belong to me and they know me in a deeply intimate way and they know me in this way because I open myself up to them and invite them to know me this intimately as I disclose myself to them. This is the kind of relationship, if you're a child of God, one of Christ's sheep, this is the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to enjoy with you. He knows you intimately by name, and he wants you to enjoy an intimate relationship with him. And observe what he says in verse 15. He knows his sheep and they know him. He says, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. In other words, Jesus' relationship with his sheep flows downstream from the relationship that he enjoys with his Father. He and his Father know each other in a deeply intimate way, knowing one another transparently and intimately and fully and savoring and loving all that they know about each other. And Jesus is saying here that he mirrors this relational intimacy in the way he goes about relating to those who belong to him. In other words, Jesus wants to be as good to us as the Father is to him. And he wants us to enjoy relating to him the way that he enjoys relating to his father. The sort of community that Jesus experiences with his father, he offers to us. And the relationship that we enjoy with him bears the beautiful imprint of the love relationship between the father and the son. That's an amazing blessing that belongs to us as believers. As for the other deep reason that Jesus is the good shepherd, he says now for the second time at the end of verse 15, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Dying on the cross in order to rescue his sheep from the death that they would otherwise die all of us who know Christ were in danger, grave danger of dying under the righteous judgment of God. And Jesus laid down his life for us in order that we might now live through his death. But there's more. Something else that makes Jesus the ultimately good shepherd. And that is his commitment to saving all his sheep and bringing them into the fold. And this brings us to the fifth declaration that Jesus makes after prevailing over the religious leaders in shepherding the blind man to salvation. Declaration number five, essentially Jesus says, I have other sheep among the Gentiles 
whom I must bring into the fold. I have other sheep among the Gentiles whom I must bring into the fold. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Commentators will tell you that the sheep that are not of this fold are the sheep who are not of the Jewish fold, which means they are sheep from among the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying, I must bring them also. Jesus is driven by a sense of divine imperative and moral necessity to go out and to bring these other Gentile sheep into the fold of salvation. As for these sheep who are from among the Gentiles, Jesus says, they will hear my voice. Many of the Jews of Jesus' day are refusing to hear his voice, but Jesus is promising that he will go to the Gentiles, many of whom will hear his voice as he calls to them just as many of you in this room heard the voice of Jesus when he called you. By the way, how many of you are Gentiles? Yeah, so this is really good news for all of us. And these Gentile sheep will come out of the various folds that they are in and become a part of the one great flock of Jesus Christ and as they gather with the sheep of this growing flock of Christ, Jesus says at the end of verse 16, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. They may come from different languages and cultures, and they may feature different skin colors, but Jesus says they will become one flock with one shepherd. Boy, in our world of division today, this is really good news, and Jesus can pull it off. Jesus is talking about the church, right? We all come from so many different backgrounds, yet here we are as one flock, together with all of Christ's sheep around the world who are a part of the flock of Jesus Christ. And what unites all of us is that we have the same good shepherd, Jesus. Jesus' words here show that it is not some accident of history that there are so many Gentiles in the church together with Jews in one great flock. This was Jesus' mission all along, and he announces that mission here in verse 16. What in the world could take so many people from different ethnicities and languages, with all the former hostilities and prejudices that once divided us and unite us all into one flock? What could possibly have the gravitas to pull all of us together into one congregation and actually keep us together? Well, it's Jesus who willingly died and was raised for us all. And this brings us to the sixth and the final 
truth that Jesus teaches after prevailing over the religious leaders and shepherding the blind man to salvation. Declaration number six, my father loves me because I lay down my life and take it up again as he commands. My father loves me because I lay down my life and take it up again as he commands. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. To appreciate what Jesus is saying here, we need to think back on what he said in verses 14 and 15, where he told us that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him just as the father knows him and he knows the father. In other words, Jesus has already told us that his relationship with us is something that flows downstream of his relationship with his father. But now here, Quite remarkably, Jesus is saying that the way he goes about caring for us actually flows back up into his relationship with his father and serves as yet another reason for the father to love Jesus. In other words, when the father sees Jesus loving us to the point of being willing to lay down his life for us, the father's heart swells with loving adoration of his son. He loves Jesus for uncountable reasons, but he loves Jesus for the extreme lengths that Jesus is willing to go in loving you. And notice in verse 17 that the father doesn't just savor Jesus' willingness to lay down his life, but he savors the fact that Jesus is willing to lay down his life so that he might do what? Take it up again. Again, in the normal world of shepherding, the sheep are blessed to have a shepherd who's willing to put his life in jeopardy in order to protect them, but no sheep wants their shepherd to actually die right? Because that would leave them without a shepherd. It would leave them unprotected. But when it comes to Christ, it is the very sin of the sheep that brings them under the sentence of death. And their only hope is twofold. Number one, that Jesus dies in their place. And number two, that he doesn't stay dead, right? As John Piper says, and I quote, the story of Jesus' death for his sheep doesn't end with a mangled shepherd lying dead among wolves and sheep left scattered and thirsting and starving in the desert. Why? Why does it not end that way? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He took up his life again so that he could continue to shepherd his sheep. In verse 18, Jesus emphasizes his own initiative in his death and resurrection. In verse 18, he says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father Yes, it is true that Jesus was handed over 
to death by his father. And yes, it is true that Jesus was handed over by Judas, who betrayed him, and by Pontius Pilate, who handed him over to be crucified. And yes, it is true that Jesus was killed by the hands of wicked men. But Jesus wants us to know that all those things happened because he laid down his life of his own initiative. And yes, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 is true when it tells us that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And yes, Romans 8, 11 is true when it tells us that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus wants us to know here that his own initiative is involved in his resurrection also. As he says in verse 18, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is actually an astonishing combination of words. Authority to lay down one's life? I mean, who wants that kind of authority? In ancient times, as well as today, if someone had authority, they used that authority to do what? To preserve their lives and protect their interests and to protect themselves and empower themselves over other people. But here Jesus is saying that he has authority to lay his life down in death upon a cross. The way he talks here would be like a judge saying to a criminal, I have authority to go to prison and get the electric chair for the crimes that you have committed. And I have authority to take up my life again on the other side of that execution. And this is the way Jesus is speaking here. And he uses this authority given to him by the Father, this authority that he possesses entirely for the good of his sheep so that through his death and resurrection we might be saved and have life is it any wonder that the father loves jesus so much is it any wonder that his sheep respond to his voice and come to him when he calls Actually, when you consider the supreme goodness of Jesus displayed in these verses, the real wonder is that anyone would refuse to come to him. Amen? Which leaves us with plenty to wonder at when we see how many in Jesus' audience here in John 10 respond to his words that he's just been speaking. Observe what John says in verse 19. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words that Jesus has been speaking. And on one side of this division in verse 20, John says, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Notice who these Many speakers are speaking to here. 
these critics of Jesus are noticing that some among them are mesmerized by Jesus' words, and they're listening to him with rapt attention. And in a panic, they immediately turn their focus on these listeners to Jesus and immediately try to get them to stop saying, he is a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? Literally, what they're saying in the Greek is, why do you hear him? Jesus earlier said that his sheep do what? They hear his voice. And it seems that's exactly what some of his listeners are doing, and they're being criticized for hearing him here. But observe how the hearers of Jesus respond to their critics in verse 21. The text says, others were saying, this is the listeners to Jesus, others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Notice how these listeners are impressed by two things about Jesus. For starters, Jesus has opened the eyes of the blind men. And they know that no demon could ever do that or would ever want to. But they are also moved by the power of Jesus' words saying these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. Demon-possessed people don't talk this way. No demon-possessed person could speak such beautiful words about loving his flock and sacrificially laying down his life for the sheep like Jesus is speaking here. So these are the two wonderful conclusions that these hearers of Jesus are arriving at. And it's very promising that they're willing to speak their conclusions out loud to people whom they know hate Jesus and view him as demon-possessed. The truth is that once you determine that Jesus did not heal the blind man through the power of a demon you really have only one option left, and that is that he did that miracle by the power of God. And once you've arrived at that conclusion, you've just stepped onto a train, rolling downhill towards the inevitable conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. And it seems that these hearers of Jesus who are speaking in verse 21 are well on their way to entering into the fold of salvation. So as we observe this division between these members of Jesus' audience, I would just close by asking you this morning, which group are you in? Are you dismissive of the words that Jesus has spoken in our passage today? Have you heard him? Do you disagree with Jesus' claim to be the good shepherd? Or do you think that you are the good shepherd of your own life who can shepherd your own life better than Jesus can? By the way, do you realize that that's what 
all of us are saying every time we willfully go astray from Jesus. In such moments, we are essentially saying, Jesus is not the good shepherd. I am. What arrogance. Or are you in the second group who hears these words from Jesus and you feel yourself resonating with them and you feel yourself being drawn to this one who is so good? If Jesus is speaking to you today and calling you to himself, I urge you to come to him and respond to him and believe in him and call upon his name for salvation and begin to learn what it is really like to be led and fed by the ultimate shepherd who will always treat you right. Always. And he will never let you down. Never. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much in these verses to give us food for thought and fellowship for many days to come. May our prayer each morning when we get up be to you, our good shepherd, as we say to you, Lord Jesus, help me today to go in and out and find pasture today through you as the door and being guided by you as my shepherd. And help me today as your sheep to confidently Know that you are the good shepherd, not I. How can we resist thinking this way, Lord? We were reminded of Psalm 23 at the beginning of the service. And in that psalm, the psalmist speaks about you, Jehovah, as the good shepherd and how you comfort and protect him. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And, but we come to the New Testament and discover on one level that your rod and staff is the wooden beam of the cross that you carry to your place of crucifixion. And that the banquet that you prepare for us in the presence of our enemies is the banquet of your body and blood that you provide for us at the Lord's table. You are unimaginably good. You are the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the greatest shepherd and you want us to know that you are so good at what you do in saving your sheep 
drawing them to yourself and then caring for them. I pray, Lord, for so many in our church who are burdened for the salvation of those that they love and care about so deeply and pray that you would work in the hearts and the lives of those that they are burdened for and that you would call out to them by name and bring them into the fold of salvation. Call them out of whatever fold they're in right now and into your fold. Help us as members of this church to do our part in allowing you through us to go out and to bring more sheep into your fold. Help us to be faithful to declare the good news of salvation through Jesus to the lost, knowing that those who hear us there will be a division. There will be some who dismiss what is said and hate what we say, but among them will be your sheep who will hear your voice and they will come and we will give you the praise and the glory. I pray finally, Lord, for us as a church that it's, it's an amazing privilege to be one of the under shepherds here at Cornerstone. And that you, in organizing life in the church, have established under-shepherds who are called to mirror your heart toward your precious sheep. And we pray for the elders of this church, Mike Berry and Alvin Davis and Jonathan Jones and Mario Lamone. Carlos Lemtiaco and Paul Kumamoto and myself, Lord, were blessed to serve in the role that you have given to us. It's an overwhelming privilege to be able to serve your precious sheep for whom you shed your blood. That's how precious they are to you. Help us to mirror your good heart towards your sheep, Lord. And we ask as well that you would raise up more shepherds who can join us in this great endeavor of shepherding the flock of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning, for presenting yourself to us so vividly in images and words that we can wrap our minds around, but we ask that you open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear the fullness of what you're communicating to us and that it would make a radical difference in the way we live today and tomorrow as your sheep. We praise you, our good shepherd, in your holy and matchless name the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.